0: I'm here with Twan Samuel, Chief of Staff, member of the United States Capitol Elite. He's a special person because he is not only a law school classmate of mine, but he is one of uh, a handful of people who I look up to as an intellectual leader in not only politics, but also in civics generally. Someone who has esteemed character, someone who's true to his principles. And I think we're going to have a great conversation tonight because uh, he really offers quite a few check boxes on the how to make your life worthwhile while enjoying yourself. Other than the diet, right? Other than you still being a vegetarian and not knowing what real food is. This is Texas. What's for dinner? Beef. That's the answer. It's always the answer. So you and Oprah, uh, I don't know what's wrong with y'all picking on Texas beef, but uh, but other than that, I think you're a great person. So if you don't mind, could you tell the listeners uh, who you are, what you do? maybe
1: your education background. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dietrich, for that inf- introduction. So my name is Tuan Samuel. I'm from uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. I went to Biloxi High School. I went to undergrad at the University of Mississippi and law school at the University of Mississippi School of Law. In undergrad, I studied political and economic transitions in, in Latin America. I wrote my uh, thesis on Haiti civil military uh, relations and the Duvalier dictatorships. I studied a semester in Querétaro, Mexico during um, an election year, which was fascinating to see political dynamics at play there Um, that, you know, to compare how and contrast with how things are done here in the United States. Um, After, you know, immediately after I finished that program, I went straight into law school. I finished law school a semester early in the fall of 2008. Um, that, I, I, you know, I always say this, you know, say this part of the story is because 2008 was when um, the presidential debate was at the University of Mississippi, the Ford Center, Barack Obama debated John McCain, and I actually had the opportunity to intern with CNN for the whole week of their coverage of the, um, of the, uh, of the, uh, of the debate. And so uh, it was during that time, I, I, I remember meeting John Kerry and Madeleine Albright and um, you know, Andre Mitchell was, was around and uh, you know all the anchors like Shepard Smith and I was shadowing Candy Crowley who worked with CNN at the time. So anyway, it culminated in the, um, me actually getting to watch the debate in front of uh, Candy Crowley as she was doing her commentary. So I was in this historic moment you know, with who would become the first African-American president uh, with you know uh, John McCain, who would still have, who would still play a role in history, as it turns out, you know many years later, uh, and it was in that moment that really uh, solidified in my mind that I wanted to uh, go into public service. Um, concurrently with all this, there was a financial, the financial collapse, the 2008 housing crisis and subprime meltdown, and so a lot of the jobs that I thought that I would have. Or the, the networking that I did were you know those those things eroded they fell by the wayside because a lot of companies were not hiring and um, the traditional routes a, a graduating senior out of college would, would take or a graduating a graduating three out of law school would take were, were, were not available um, so I really focused in on on what my values are and what was important to me and that experience with uh, CNN during the debate it just sort of clicked in my mind it's like I'm really into politics I love you know, um, being of service, and I'm really passionate about it. I've watched the news all my life. And so I moved to, um, you know, Washington, DC, and um, found relatives in Safford, Virginia who let me stay with them uh, for a time to get my uh, feet on the ground. or I stomped the payment for um, a little over a month and a half or so until I got a legal internship in Congresswoman Waters' office. So that's basically where I started. Um, End of April, early May, 2009, as a, a legal fellow working on her, um, working under her legislative director who managed her managed her judiciary committee portfolio, um, and I just uh, the first speech I actually wrote for the congresswoman was in June of that same year, which, as it turns out, was quite a feat because knowing what I know now, you know, no one just comes in off the street and writes something for uh, Maxine Waters. So that was, so I, that you know that sort of started me on my uh, track of. Of, you know working very closely with her um, I was eventually made permanent in the fall of 2008 you know later in the year and um, I have served a few roles I, I've been a legislative counsel again on her overseeing managing her portfolio on the Judiciary Committee which is criminal justice immigration antitrust um, I've then moved over to the committee staff I was worked on the, the financial services uh, committee staff. And I worked on her subcommittee on oversight investigations uh, where we really handled a lot of the Dodd-Frank implementation, the Wall Street reform law, Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, implementation of that and oversight of um, of uh, the FSOC and the Orderly Liquidation Authority and all of the, the different um, powers that were given to the federal government to make sure that there was no, we would never again have um, uh, you know, a compromised financial system the way we had in 2008. That caused a lot of... Uh, damage and the loss of wealth, cataclysmic, and, um, you know, communities of color. And then uh, after about a year and, a, and some change on the uh, commit financial services committee, she asked me if I'd like to serve as her chief of staff. And that is, you know, th- the rest is history.
0: Yeah. But you've, you've been chief of staff for a few years now, but Seven. you didn't start there, right? So sometimes I think my my graduating students, particularly Uh, undergraduates, I think the MBA students, our graduate students have an understanding a little bit more about the real world, but some of our undergraduates graduate immediately expecting to be the CEO or or CFO, and you're saying that you worked through different roles, including an internship initially to sort of get where you are. Uh, A a few things that strike me are you sought out your authentic path after experiencing some, or at least availing yourself of various opportunities to explore different career options and then of course you adapted in the presence of reality. The phrase I regularly use with my students is it depends context is key the context in 2008 was sort of a weakened job market and then also uh, there's an old german saying man plans god laughs and so it sounds like maybe politics wasn't your initial path prior to 2008 is that is that a fair assessment
1: well no i I think it was always, well, well, thank you for teeing that up because you're right. And I, and I say this a lot to people that ask me about my, my success. So it, I think it was, you know, I think my, my path was always in politics, but I was not in alignment with that. And the, the financial crisis actually forced me to assess my values and really hone in on what I enjoy. Um, if it weren't for the financial crisis, I would have done what everybody else does you know, just sort of try to do your best to get a job and you just end up somewhere. Um, but I didn't have that luxury. I had to like really focus in on, you know, what is, you know, what do I see as my purpose? What I want to contribute to society or to the world and the financial crisis as stressful and depressing as it was to be a graduating, you know, to be graduated from law school thinking you're about to start your life, but it's, it's you know, it doesn't work out that way. As stressful as it was, it actually turned out to be, you know, the best thing for me. Because if that not had if if it weren't for the crisis, I wouldn't have moved to D.C. I may have been diverted off my my path. So you're right to tell your students that it's not, you know, sometimes, sometimes the path to your destiny is not not so readily visible in front of you. And so what I always say and what I what I followed is is like I never really sought a um, title or you know, money, um, you know, these things are important, but it's like, you know, what, I, I feel like if you are, if your job is your mission, you'll be successful, you'll make money. So it's like, focus on that. And I just think that a lot of kids today don't really focus on expertise and building up experience. People like are always moving from one thing to the next. Uh, you know, they move too soon, uh, They mo- you know, move too quickly and before they even gain an expertise on anything that they're doing. And so it's all all about title and not enough about substance. And I've always and I and I've always focused on really, really, really studying and diving into what I'm doing and being the best at what it is before I'm before I'm ready to move on.
0: Absolutely, and 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 I and I like that you you mentioned move too quickly because you finished law school a semester early, so. I mean, do you think that it makes sense sometimes to finish things early? And just as a, as a point with that, I, I do remind my students that I'm a firm believer in better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. That means that if you finish a semester early and you've got your Juris Doctor in hand, you can spend that extra six months looking for a job that has JD required as opposed to having to say, we'll have it in 18 months or we'll have it in 12 months, six months, whatever that criteria so, is. Mean, you had the credentials and then you moved to do that. And then I also think that your point about the speech writing definitely affirms the authenticity value, right? Once you find your true path, you'll continuously be affirmed in it by promotions or validation. Sometimes that external validation where I have to remind my students, focus on the content and the grades will follow. Some of them are so interested in the outcome that they don't look at the, the tools and, and process, right? To, to build where they are. So you finished a semester early, and then you went up to DC, and you were fortunate to have family that you could stay with. But now, in your role, twelve years in, I think you probably worked uh, with and and supervised a number of people who have come with no connections in in the city. What's your advice to somebody who's think, thinking about or seeking to move to another city without a, a couch to surf on, without a family network? I mean, how do you how do you pick up from Mississippi, which I don't want to say is sort of the inverse of Washington DC but but there sure are some uh, lacking uh, <laughs> accoutrements to most of uh, uh, of the Mississippi uh, landscape as compared to the very cosmopolitan international DC so I mean what, what are some of those points and lessons? do you have any anecdotes of your of your well, I,
1: I guess if you so I, I had I, I had relatives um, and I and I want to you know, Stafford, Virginia is 45 minutes away from DC, so it was actually quite a hike. So I I, I had a, tr- a pickup truck that I would actually have to drive from Stafford uh, to Virginia, Franconia, Springfield Metro Station, and then ride the train for like is another- Is that the orange ride.
0: line? Huh? Is that the, the orange line?
1: Yeah, orange, orange and blue line, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Orange, blue, and yellow line. I think they all go towards Franconia. Um, but- Yeah, I mean, it was it wasn't so so close, you know. If you don't have relatives and um, you you know you don't have money, the there are internships, there are paid fellowships, there are like there are programs that will bring people here and house them, Um, and then that gives you an opportunity to make it as you will. the, the, the 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 Hispanic Caucus, the Black Caucus, you know, different colleges and universities they have programs where they'll pay people to be here um, for a certain period of time. And then what you do with that time is really up to you. And so if you have the opportunity to either stay here near a relative and, and do what I did, which is really start from zero. Or if you're in a fellowship, I just always tell you know interns or whoever where you're starting, be be proud of the work that you're doing and don't think that no, you know, no job is too small. Um, make impressions, meet people, you know, network. Now we now we can connect uh, digitally. Um, it's 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 sad. I hope we get back to doing, I hope we get past this pandemic this year, but, you know, we make the best of what we can with the technology. So I would just tell people to find your network, you know, find your tribe, find uh, the group that is going to help you and assist you and, and usher you along the way. So uh, find family in D.C. or in, the, in Virginia or Maryland, or get in touch with, the, get connected with the fellowship program that'll pay for you to stay here. Um, once you do get here, um, make sure you're meeting the right people. Um, the right people could be, um, let's see, if you're, if you're in Texas, you have an alumni association at your school that can connect you with people who are already here. Um, Mississippi, um, University of Mississippi, they have networking events that they host in DC. So those are great opportunities to connect with people uh, who can tell you, who can give you tips. And then you just sort of, it's like a seat and it's like a building block. Every time you talk to someone, they introduce you to somebody else, they introduce you to somebody else. And then after, you know, five, 10, 15 people, um, that person, that, that last person makes a recommendation on your behalf that can maybe change your life, which is kind of what happened with me. Um,
0: that makes sense. And and also on the subject of moving, I don't know if you can talk about how you sort of availed yourself of these opportunities. In law school, you were working with CNN, you got to meet the future president, uh, a long-standing esteemed Senator John McCain, uh, sort of a war hero. So you met these folks, you met with some of these um, media uh, talking heads, right? From CNN, Fox News, whatever. And so you had those experience, but you also mentioned in undergraduate that you were studying uh, sort of these uh, Latin cultures, possibly traveling to Mexico with the school and things like that. What was the benefit of of this travel? How has that helped you in navigating your current role? Because I know you travel for work. I don't know if you travel internationally, but I mean, those experiences I think are not only personally edifying, but they allow you to expand the network that you mentioned is so crucial. I mean, what are some of the the tools or practices that you use to not only find these opportunities, but also how do you navigate travel, right? I mean, you, you have a pet, and you say, I got to go to Costa Rica for a week, who's watching Fluffy, right? Who's feeding Fluffy? Um, I mean, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the benefits? How do you find these things?
1: Well, on so the the, the, the study abroad, the study in Mexico was required as a part of the program. So if you're an international studies major, I, I'd, I'd venture to say anywhere, you probably have to travel somewhere. Um, and stay and stay there so that was just that was just culturally significant and beneficial to spend a, you know an amount of time in another country um and i just like to travel that's you know that's just something personally i, I like to be immersed in other cultures and i actually like latin culture um you know the, the language spanish it's, it's it's a beautiful language it, it's almost like people sing when they speak and uh, there's an intimacy there you know they look at look at you in the eye and so i just i really appreciate that so um, has that helped me? the Spanish sometimes comes comes in handy um, you know here in DC but um, I would just these these the these things are you know studying abroad, getting into croft Institute um, working with CNN and then coming here and working with congresswoman waters it's, it's nothing is by accident if you're like really in alignment with what your what your purpose is and what you enjoy. And I'll, and I'll just share this anecdote because I, I kind of skipped over it. In the early 1990s, I remember very vividly when I was a young child in grade school, sitting at the dinner table with my two military parents in a Gulf, and we lived in Gulfport, Mississippi. Their military base was in Biloxi. But they were talking to me about. We were debating. We were having a conversation, and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know the ins and outs of it. But my parents and I always talked about politics. We always talked about government. I was always interested in that, even as a little child. They were talking to me about ebonics, and uh, you know, debating the merits of that and uh, the Rodney King riots and this, you know, this congresswoman from South Central L.A. But who would, you know, none of us at that table knew that I would go work for her, you know, all these years later. But it's because, you know, I have always had a passion and appreciation for public service and politics. You know, fast forward a few years after that, I remember being in my grandmother's neighborhood in South Florida, the, the community was um, meeting and because there was all this consternation because there was a development that was going to displace a lot of residents. And I thought to myself, well, that's not right. You know, someone should do something about that. Like this isn't fair, you know, this isn't fair. Um, and, you know, so it's just if, as I look back on, and then, you, you, you know, a part of my record at Ole Miss where I got involved with, you know, the James Meredith statue and, you know, uh, discussions around race and social justice and going volunteering at the Fannie Lou Hamer School. I mean, th- th- these things did, didn't happen by accident. These opportunities didn't happen by accident. It's just because I've always had a sense of, you know, who I was, what I was interested in. And by virtue of me being grounded in those things, I, I, I was able to meet the moment when the opportunity presented itself. And so that's, that's, I mean, I know that may be a little bit esoteric, but it really does start with eliminating the voices in your head or your, your, your parents or your peers or whatever pressures you put on yourself about what you should be doing. I mean, that, that, this generation, you know, Gen X and even some of the younger millennials there's all this pressure on them to, you know, be something, you know, to have this title, to have this life that social, that the internet and and, and our culture is telling them that they should have in the way that they should be. But there's not enough focus on what it takes to get to that. Um, And that's what I just, that is the best piece of advice that I can tell people. You can't build something overnight. You really have to do the work and it's a slow grind. It takes some patience. It takes some focus. But you really have to get, you know, know, know who you are, know, know what you're about, know what you want, and then go for it. Granted, I was forced into that because of a historic recession. So I may have fallen into the same traps as a lot of people, just sort of doing, going along to get along. But, you know, since that recession, we've had one crisis after the next. So I think even now in this moment where we're facing the pandemic, I think, you know, everybody has the opportunity to, you know, get what they want. But I think you'll be most successful if you really take stock of what your strengths are, what you view as your, your contributions to the world and to society. And then, you know, that internship, that opportunity, it'll, it'll meet you. It'll meet you because you've done the work.
0: I think, I think that's very poignant and, and relevant. I, I also remind students, of course, we all know this phrase, you, God gave you two ears and one mouth, right? So listening, but availing yourself of these networks, right? Taking advantage of other people's perspective because really our eyes look outward. So you've got two eyes, but they look out. And so sometimes it's helpful. Well, I know this is counter to some biblical maxims about the log in your own eye, right? Um, sometimes it's helpful to uh, sort of have that peer group to help you self-assess, to to assist you in that introspection. Mentors. Mentors Mentors and and colleagues who who are looking at you and saying, you may think this is what you want, but maybe this, right? And you can listen and not heed that advice. That's what people often forget as well. I, I think sometimes people think that if you ask for advice, you have to take it. You don't. This United States, as we were talking about before we started recording, you have the right to be stupid, right? You have the right to say, I don't like the ingredients in the vaccine. What are the ingredients in a vaccine? Well, three shots of vodka, a squirt of vermouth, and two olives, right? No, that's not a vaccine. That's a martini. I don't know, right? And then some people are going to argue and say you can't make an martini with vodka, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, but I, but I love that point of introspection, and I, I've actually started working out in the last two years because I had friends challenge me and say, no successful person doesn't have a routine, no, or, or an exercise routine, right? No successful person uh, is able to manage the. Uh, sort of career success without first mastering oneself, without first mastering the physical health that ties into the mental health and the emotional health and, and those things. So a lot of what you're talking about is highly appropriate. And I think reaffirms some of the lessons that people have probably heard from other sources that maybe they don't like, but actually witnessing your tangible success and saying, wow, this is a process. This is something that needs development. This is something that we work towards, not something that we we are. And I and I was thinking when you're talking about the, the old movie Caddyshack, right? Some, of it, some people haven't seen that. And there's a, a famous funny line that really resonates with me today. And that's when, when Judge Smales tells his, his nephew, the world needs ditch diggers. And it's funny, right? The context is funny. But the reality is, why can't we, to your point about social media and some of these external influences, why can't we accept the fact that you're the only chief of staff in that office. There might be a deputy chief of staff, there might be an assistant chief of staff, but there's only one Congresswoman and there's only one chief of staff. And so if there are 15 people vying for that spot, only one of the 15 can get it. And that if you're going to deliver mail, if you're going to be President Obama's body man, like the guy who's, you know, working in the Capitol before he did that for for Obama, I can't remember his name, um, you know, be the best at that, right? Be the best Mail carrier, be the best intern, be the best communications director, be the best legislative counsel. And, and as, as you aspire, right, and Winston Churchill says plans are of little importance, but planning is essential. Get those tools in your toolbox, make the plan, but accept that you may have to be nimble, you may have to adapt to changing circumstances or environments, right, like the economic crisis that you referenced in 2008. Accept that maybe you don't start out as the congresswoman. Maybe you start out, well, of course, now we're getting into some, some Texas topics, right? You can't start out as a congresswoman. We'll, we'll debate that in legislative uh, topics, right? But, um, but maybe you don't start as a congresswoman. Maybe you start out as an intern and you work your way up and you apply that same skill and diligence. You don't wait for the opportunity to be chief of staff, to be excellent. You, as, as Tuan Samuel, are excellent in all of those roles. And then you are given the responsibility to match that excellence. So, I mean, I think everything that you said is highly relevant and should be heated uh, with great with, with great merit and great weight um, by the list. Can I
1: can I, add, can I add something else to this? Because I it just sort of clicked to me too. the 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 other thing I think or um, the, the the reason why I guess I'm successful or, or you know somewhat uh, is I've I've always chosen adversity. Um, I've always embraced adversity. Um, because I, I think that th- those are the opportunities that give you the most potential for growth and um, excellence, um you know, what makes men great, adversity. Even and you know, I would go back, even the decision to go to Ole Miss. You know there were some people in my life who were like, well, why would you want to go to Ole Miss? I mean, that there's all this history and like, wh- what about you know people, you made it races, races, races and were like, well, look, you know I could go, I could have left, I could have went to an HBCU, I could have went and I said this at the time. But I said, but they don't need me there. I said, I can go to Ole Miss. I can go to the University of Mississippi. I can confront it. I can, you know, be in that. And I can, you know, there's an opportunity to be, there's, a, there's an opportunity there to be, um, to be um, challenged in ways that I, I couldn't imagine to be made better, to have my ideas strengthened, to be able to, you know, stand my ground. Maybe I would have something to learn. So I've always just chosen adversity. Um, and people run away from that. And I think, you know, you kind of miss, you, as your as my grandparents, my, my ancestors would say, you block your blessing um, when you try to take the easy route. But, you know, I've, I've always chosen a difficult situation. And even now, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get some semblance of work-life balance uh, because you kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit addicted to it. I'm like, oh, well, you know, what struggle, what kind of struggle can I get into now? Cause I just, I'm motivated by that. Um, so that I think that's also has to do with how I got here. I'm working for someone as, you know, um, dedicate. You know, she's very hardworking. The Congress, Congress in the water. So um, I even I even embraced her and embraced that, and just I just thrived in this environment because it gave me just enough tension and struggle to where I could be successful. I'm actually unmotivated by monotony and boredom, like that kind of, I feel myself, I feel the life drained out of me actually when I don't, when I'm not stimulated or not challenged, if that makes sense. So when I'm very much in a stressful environment that's new and has all my senses on alert, I, I, I sort of, you know, I kind of get off on that.
0: Uh, right, well, you're talking to the hardest working man in government. So I understand <laughs> uh, the struggle of work-life balance and definitely the idea that in those challenges, in accomplishing those goals, there's a rush that is not experienced when you're you're sitting on a beach with a martini or or, or whatever and, and saying you know oh I'm just going to read a book like no let me solve those hard problems let me solve solve those mm-hmm. challenging questions and resolve these these difficult issues such as why would anyone think that Spanish is more beautiful than German like when we think of romantic languages German ah sprechen de Deutsch Ooh. but uh, but you know you stick with you sp- stick with the Latin cultures that's fine. So I, I, I mean, this, this is all, all very uh, revelatory. One of the challenges that, that I've seen people encounter and, and struggle with not only is a work-life balance, but you're in politics, right? Both of us sort of do things in politics and you experience this in the office, right? You, you've got that one person who's, who's possibly toxic or the one person who's always got an issue with how things are done or how have you been able to sort of steadily uh, progress and advance in your career while navigating not only the challenges of your of your work, those quantifiable role challenges, such as you're working in a, for an elected official and you've got to explain decisions that may be um, unfamiliar or, or confusing to the, the person who isn't uh, as versed in, in the law or, or the Constitution as you are, but sometimes you've just got those intra-office issues or inter-office issues. Maybe you've got to maybe you've got to go over to Senator Cruz's office and try to explain to his staff how a piece of legislation helps people in Texas. How do you navigate that? How do you survive the intra-office politics and the inter-office politics?
1: Well, I think on the inter, inter, internal, our internal office politics and then dealing with others outside of the office, um, one of the best pieces of advice that I was given here uh, by a dear friend is um, you know, people can only give you what they have and people can only give you what they have. And I felt so freed, liberated to sort of, to know that. Um, you know, the root of a lot of conflict is sort of, you feel like you're not heard, you feel like someone is affronting you, um, and you sort of, you, you wish somebody would respond a certain way, like you would, or do something the way that you would, or think the way that you would, and you just sort of, you'll bump your head in, into a wall, just trying to, to get something more out of someone than what they're they're capable of giving you. And so like, I've, I've really been able to navigate in, in recent years, conflict by sort of stepping out of the, stepping out of myself and in the current situation and saying, okay, um, I've gotten all that. I I've, I've gone as far as I can with this person. Let me recalibrate or let me accept that they're, they're, going to be in this place, let me see what other common ground we can reach, or, you know, let me just surrender and, and retreat. In internal um, office politics, it's, it's actually it's, you know, it's very difficult being a manager. And this year, this past year was actually very challenging because not only do you have the usual challenges you have on a day-to-day basis managing people, but you're in a pandemic that's new to everybody. You have to transition to telework. You have to make sure everybody's equipped to do their job while Still keeping people motivated and, and reaching their targets, and it you know it got really stressful, and yeah, it's 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 not you know I don't have all the answers, um, you know I I'm pretty even kill and chill except when I get to a point you know, um, and it, it's only happened a few times where I've as I say unleashed the ancestors on people. You know. <laughs> I like that, <laughs> and you know that when that happens is I'm very aware of it. And because it, it's only happened a handful of times. It's like, you know, I've I've walked this uh, line and you know, I've been very patient, but now I need to like emphasize like the the imperative of the situation. Um, and you know, that's a decision that you that's a decision that you make. But you know, I, I think there's also structurally there's structurally challenging things about this office in particular, um, you know, that I, I I don't you know I really can't get into, but I have done the best I can with the tools that I'm given um, to navigate, you know, the internal office dynamics. I do believe along the way that I've had the opportunity to mentor people who've gone on to be very much, you know, successes in their own right, who've told me that they appreciated, you know, their time in this office and appreciate my my friendship. So, regardless of of whatever you know stresses may come and go uh, in the moment or over a period of time, or in a period of time, uh, one of the joys about this job has been the opportunity to, you know, change somebody's life in the way that somebody changed my life. There's, you know, people on people looking at this may know CNN's Simone Sanders. So, um, She's a, com- she's a commentator. Well, she was a commentator. You know
0: I don't watch CNN. Well, I already know. I'm- fake news,
1: fake news, fake news. Right,
0: right. I'm only allowed to watch one network. So, so. <laughs> Come on, I'm going to Google her after this.
1: No, so she, she was, uh, I actually interviewed her for a job here. And I told her, you know, I said, you know, you should really be on television. I, you know, it's like, you have such a big personality. I don't really see this job for you. Um, I saw something in her that was bigger than what she was focused on in the moment. Um, because when I'm talking to somebody, I really like to, you know, get in and, and look. And I just saw this dynamic, big personality that couldn't be contained uh, or restrained by a, congr- you know, by this setting or by the job that she was seeking. She goes on to become Bernie Sanders' uh, communications director in 2016 on this campaign, campaign press secretary. Then she gets on with Biden in the last campaign. She's now um, in VP Harris's communication shop. So stories like that, you know, are really, you know, that 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 I'm some, I'm proud of that. You know, I'm I'm proud of, you know, that type of story. And she's told me this, she's written about it, how, you know, the conversations I had with her when she was interviewing here sort of changed the direction of her life. And so the opportunity to do that, meeting different kids or you know different people that come into my, you know, come into this space, that's a that's a great thing. Um, you know, I'm not here for my own personal glory or aggrandizement. I'm I think my, the greatest thing that I can do in this life, in my life, is to you know leave something behind and help leave good people in this world. You know, I think we just need really. Um, I just, I just, um, if we had, uh, there's just so many uh, awful people and uh, it could kind of, I just think we just need a little bit more kindness. And um, maybe if people like, could look at one another and just see the humanity that it would just make all the difference. And you know, if you can see someone's hopes and dreams and not just everything that you've been told to believe about them, like, and that that's just my greatest thing. And I'm just sort of choking up thinking about just all the problems that we're having. But if we just talk to each other, like focus on it. I mean, the way that I engage with Simone Sanders and, and kids that come in here, I'm just thinking about all the, the people who've said that I've changed their life that that's something to feel good about not the not the nastiness that is on display right now and i just wish more people could see that and embrace that part of life i'm sorry i'm like getting off on a tangent but anyway next question i think
0: i think it's poignant. i mean again that's one of the reasons i love talking to you is because well i mean among other things um you got all this latin feeling business that we just don't have in my culture um, what do you do with feelings? You bury them under lots and lots of scotch. <clears throat> but, um, <laughs> but, but I think, I mean, you, you've demonstrated your strength, you've demonstrated your resilience, working in a very challenging environment. You all have crazy hours on the Hill. I know, as you know from my visits up there, I've, I've sort of informally worked with various uh, veterans groups, the lobby, and I know how hard y'all work. And I know the hours are a little bit odd. I know the, the struggle to maintain family commitments the, the stresses of working with people in different offices while saying, hey, even after your boss is gone in two years or six years, we still have to work together if you want to get your pension. Um, if you're still working on the Hill, we need to have collaboration. I mean, all those things are, are relevant. I recognize, as we talked about before we started recording, the trauma of the sixth. And I and I, as, as somebody who's who's been in a few car accidents, I know that sometimes that trauma isn't realized until later the, the full weight or gravity of situations, the life and death nature of certain uh, sort of domestic terrorism or whatever. Those things, and of course, we're, we're old enough to remember 9-11, right? I, I, I remember my mother calling me um, that morning to tell me about it, right? And sort of watching these scenes, it just didn't register. It wasn't real to me for several days. And then when it hit me, the the, the seriousness, the loss of life, the, the impact, it was... I think, I think that was something that maybe uh, millennials are looking for and maybe the pandemic can provide that for them to step back and say, you know, we're all gonna die, right? Not to be nihilistic, not to cite Reverend Adrian Rogers in every broadcast, right? But we're all gonna leave this earth one, one way or another. And what, is, what are we gonna leave, right? And, and th- we all know the, the cliched expressions about can you name the 10 wealthiest people from 2015? can you name the 10 gold medalists from the 2006 Olympics or 96 Olympics, right? And and the answer is no. But you remember that teacher, you remember that mentorship moment where uh, Congressman Waters, chief of staff said, your your dreams are too small for your talents, right? And shifting the trajectory for someone else's benefit. And I've definitely experienced in my life, and and why I resonate with with a lot of what you're saying, I've experienced that where Um, There's that moment of uncertainty. There's that fear with regard to a career development or transition, and a door will close, and I am so thankful later on that that door closed so that a door to something greater could open, and where some of those menial tasks led me to, you know, I didn't didn't ask for this job. I've never had a job that I asked for, right? I've, I've never um, applied for a job that I was not asked to apply for. I've never done a job that I wasn't asked. To. I'm the youngest of four. So I only do things when people ask me. Otherwise, I'm happy to sit on my porch and, and have coffee, right? And I thought I was signing up to be an adjunct. And because of my resume that was built in somewhat um, not very glamorous jobs, right? I was chief contracts officer for two major community college systems, but it's not a front page job. It's not um, a glamorous job. It's not a lucrative job. But those skill sets, that resume, encouraged the hiring managers here, my mentor, Kurt Stanberry, Gail Evans, those folks, said, we we see something in you and we want you to be a full-time professor. And so that trust with our future generations, education, knowledge, talent, growth, was was highly, um, not only flattering, but also sort of a burden, right? Like, wow, I'm being given this mantle of responsibility for. Grooming future leaders, future business leaders, future uh, civic participants. And, and that all came from the seven years of sort of routine work that I had done before and, and that I excelled in. I didn't phone it in any day of the week. I gave 100% every day, whether it was removing records based on a record retention policy, whether it was filing documents, whether it was making sure and tracking you know, tracking down signatures and making sure all the parties had signed. Those very monotonous or, or unchallenging, not intellectually stimulating tasks, brought me to this point, which is a pretty rewarding job. I mean, being a professor is not a bad gig. Um, and I and I was thinking of the Mary Tyler Moore quote: "You can't be brave if you've only had wonderful things happen to you." And I and I hope that some of the challenges that you experience on the sixth uh, of, of January uh, bring people around to, to a little bit more to, to be a little bit more like Twan. Right, be be a bit more like you. I know we all wanted to be like Mike back in the day, or Bono's football and baseball, but to be a little bit more like you in understanding that our our true purpose in life isn't to make money or to get a title, it's to contribute and and sort of pers- persist and create a sustainable environment for a better future for for everyone's children. Right, you've got children, you care about this, and um, so I I I love talking with you about these things, and I appreciate you being candid with me.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, no, it's, 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 it's true. And I mean, I've had, uh, th- this year has actually this past year, you know, through the pandemic has been the most challenging, uh, year. Um, so, it, and, you know, it, it all culminated with on January 6th. And I'm just not, I'm not quite over it. And the, uh, you know, in terms of like, uh, I, I went back and I, you know, I said, you know, people can only give you what they have. It's like, okay. Um, the the that throng, that mass of people that um you know got on a bus or got in their car or made their way up here um to do that you know to do to deface and break uh and ransack the capital you know off of off of a lie and like just vitriol and and hatred you know what what's the what's the common ground it all it, it really did test it did test my um my, uh, you know, my, my optimism and, and hopefulness, because it's I, I usually think there's something redeeming about, you know, people or, you know, a situation, you can like learn something, but there was, uh, you know, looking at those people that came here, um, you know, as they were coming, go- roaming the hall like they just, there's, there was no, uh, they came here to do damage. And they came here just to uh, you know burn things down and to 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 maim or to you know be a voyeur as it happened and there was no there was no underlying principle you know i so I, what I, what i would say to you know re, my re, what i say to republican friends because as i'm from mississippi i've been friends with republicans grew up with republicans all my life i don't know what this, you know, I don't know what the Republican Party is now. These aren't the Republicans I grew up with in Mississippi. Um, it's it just seems to be this um, coalescing around an individual who's not worthy of that adoration. But even even if it was on the Democratic side, like we don't, I don't worship, I don't idolize uh, President Obama or, or anybody on our side in, in that way, in that strange way. Like I think, you know, it's just it's just bizarre. Um, And I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just wondering how that happens. It's a tiny, it's a, it's a thousand little steps. That's what, that's what it takes to get there to that point. Um, The folks who feel like they're not listened to, who, um, who are are left behind, who are um, annoyed by this system, who feel like the people up here on both sides aren't really looking out for them. They're only looking out for special interests. And you kind of want a, a racking ball to break that whole system up. So I, I I get that because I, I share some of those frustration frustrations too, frustrations too. But then on the other hand, it's just uh, you know there's the the xenophobic racist element that um, is really driven off of stemming the tide of multiculturalism and the advances that people of color have made in this uh in this country. The you know make America make America great again the I remember at old I remember at Old Miss in a, a world history class we were watching um, old Nazi Germany Germany propaganda videos um, and just sort of the, the images and the, the slogans that they use to rally and incite people to um, eventually turn turn, an, turn a blind eye to a mass atrocity, a historic atrocity And you don't even have to wait 50 years from now to sort of see that the the imagery, the slogans, uh, the rhetoric—it's just—it's just just been so blatant. Uh, And you—you know—we've been on this perch, we've been on this, we've been the shining city on a hill, um, the beacon of hope and the symbol of democracy, the world over. And now the world has uh, seen our dirty laundry, uh, and we've been exposed. And you know, it's it's like where do we go from here? So I, when I was talking to you earlier about the sense that even though you know there is some relief among some, some looking at this may have been a Trump supporter, and that's that's fine. But even though there's a relief that um, you know President President Biden uh, won the election, I, I to, you know, there is a sense on both sides, Republican and Democrats. Republican and Democrats, that something is broken here, that something has been fundamentally broken and exposed and damaged, and it's gonna take a lot to fix it. We'll get this COVID bill passed. I believe that will happen. But then what happens next is really the hard part. The, um, you know, how do we repair the, the damage, the, the breach of our democracy, of our capital, of our of our of our standing in the world, it's all been compromised, and it's going to take a lot to rebuild it. I you know I say to people, you know kids or, you know and, and the next generation they 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 they're going to have to play. Everybody's going to have to play a part in this um, in this exercise. Uh, the people here in power now can't do it alone. They have limitations on what they can accomplish, but but really. And it's, it's kind of the last stand for a lot of people here. You know, it's, it's just getting to that time where we're in a period of transition where new leadership is just going to emerge in the natural course of things. And so I just hope that people out there in Texas and in Mississippi, <laughs> in and California and every, everywhere else, you know, I hope they paid attention to what has happened um, this last year, these last, uh, you know, 14 months understand the importance of leadership and courage and uh, integrity and honesty and truth and what happens when when a lie when a when a when 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 the opposite of all those things takes over it can have a corrosive effect so we're we're in trouble here we're in trouble here we got a lot of work to do so but i'm I'm hopeful that we're going to come out of this uh, even better. Yeah. I
0: think the optimism is is profound, but, I, and you mentioned a few points that I think are very resonant. I'm going to kind of bring us back to the business world, because I, I, I don't want to complain to the Congresswoman, but through you as a medium about all these California license plates on my Texas roads, right? Left lane is for passing only. 65 is an advisory speed limit. If you can't do 80, stay in California, right? That's my public service announcement, right? We're not, we don't want your taxes. We don't want your driving, right? LA traffic, is for LA, but um, I think on a business point, you've mentioned the thousand steps getting there, and, and of course, I always highlight the idea that um, better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it and that toolbox idea, but another sort of age-old adage is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and so I see some of the points that you're making as far as qualities of a good leader completely uh, applicable and transferable or, or you know, uh, translated into a business environment where integrity, uh, understanding where your leaders come from or what their purpose is, can create a more efficient uh, sort of pragmatically profitable business enterprise. Diversity has been proven to ensure corporate successes, right? And I cite for my students that corporate boards during the, the economic downturn that we keep referencing in 2008, corporate boards over time that had at least one woman on the board perform better than those with all-male boards. It's, it's documented, it's researched, it's proven. So I think that authenticity, authenticity of the leadership is relevant. I think understanding where that comes from is relevant. I think when you mentioned 1,000 steps, understanding that that one problem employee probably didn't show up saying, I'm going to do bad work today, or show up saying, I'm going to make everybody miserable. It was probably a culmination of various factors in the work environment and people that should have been addressed ahead of time. And so figuring out, or even, even if they are a problem person, maybe the initial problem was with the hiring manager, right? We deal with strategic sourcing in my environment, so making sure that you have the right tool for the, right, for the job that you want. Maybe somebody should have taken a, a, a point to them like the, the case uh, you mentioned, Simone at CNN. Again, I got a Googler, but I always cite for my students the New London, Connecticut case of the police officer who wasn't hired. Uh, for a dispatch job, right? It was an individual trying to hire, be hired by, you know, this case. And the court said, Yeah, you're too smart. They gave you an aptitude test and they said, You're going to be bored in this job. They're doing you a favor, basically. The court didn't say that, but from our discussion, this person was thinking too small for their talents. And the police department was affirmed in saying, this job isn't for you. Our hiring criteria says you're too smart to be a dispatcher. You're going to be bored. You're not going to be effective at it, right? And so you got that. And then on another element, you mentioned this um, sort of creative, narr- creative narrative, right? These alternate realities, alternate facts that are just not supported by commonly agreed upon data, and particularly evident in our political environment, um, these uh, this comfort with having um, unsubstantiated claims, alternate realities and how that in the work environment can be impactful and dangerous, particularly in the pandemic. So I, I also am curious, as we go forward out of the pandemic, you, you're managing employees remotely for the most part. And we did this in college, right? So I'm always curious why it's so challenging for managers to handle remote work. Because I, and I've had college-educated managers. I had one director who I just thought was an idiot. I was like, why doesn't she understand that we did this in college? You get your assignments, you go home, you go to the dorm, in my case, you go to the library, which you know what the library is an old Miss, right? So that's where I spend all my days. And uh, you have a beer and you, you go over the work and then you get an exam. And the exam determines whether you learn the material or not, but you're personally accountable for your um, for, for your study habits, for your contribution to the learning process. And I don't necessarily see that same principle uh, or, or practice being as effective in the workplace, and I, and I wonder why, or do you think it is as effective? So I think there are a number of factors here that I'm curious what your take is on alternate realities. How do you deal with different outcomes, right? Particularly in a remote workforce, as we move out of the pandemic, do you see virtual environments continuing? Do you see this investment in technology saying, hey, we only need to network once a month. We don't need to see each other every day. And concurrently, with aside from the alternative facts, what are some of the lessons that you've had about addressing uh, other than just not hiring somebody that you think is too too big for the role that they're applying for and doing them that service, how do you deal with that squeaky wheel on the outset? How do you reintegrate someone who maybe feels alienated in a workplace?
1: Well, um, let me so let me try to take each of those. The so there are industries where um, th- this the way that we're working now may be conducive to produ- productivity. Uh, from an ongoing basis. I, I do think that there are aspects about this job that are not served by Zoom and, and this. <clears throat> a lot of the a lot of the legislative process is about um, relationships and interacting with people. And I think, you know, the pandemic has taken away our ability to um, you know have a coffee or like shake hands or just interact with other members or, or their offices. And that's just that's a fundamental part of that of the of the legislative process, and so I don't I don't think that we can um, I, th- I think that it will be good when the pandemic is over for Congress, um because the the deal making the hand wringing and all of that you know you can't do that over Zoom, <clears throat> and then there's also the uh, the, just the 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 quiet the conversation the sidebar conversations I mean this is a, this is kind of a social um this is a social industry, a business, like it, it, relationships matter, and you really can't grow relationships meaningfully um, for a long for an extended period of time, virtually online. So I don't, I don't think that that is true here. I I was told or or reading that, you know, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg thinks that, you know, that what we've experienced with the pandemic with uh, digitized work is is the way of the future, and that maybe we will be in a situation where you don't have to necessarily go to another office building to interact with your colleagues, you can be teleported in uh, by like a, a hologram or video projection, and I think that, that that is that is true and that can work and that can that can um, certainly be advantageous to multinational uh, corporations. Uh, I can see that as advantageous to them, but from a for for public policy, I think there's no substitute for the um, getting in a room with with people and and ironing out your differences. Reintegrating people who are, um, when you trying to reintegrate people on a team who are not, who, who may be feeling isolated or are left behind or are not up, up to snuff, that is, a, that is a challenge. And I would just, the way I've dealt with that is really, I would go back to what I've said before, is you, you try to we out of that person, you know, what their strengths are, what they gravitate towards and uh, work with them to cultivate their, their strengths. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to force people to do something that they that they cannot do. Um, you know, I think my job is to also be a coach as well as a mentor, as well as a supervisor and helping people develop their own strengths and, and what they believe that they're good at. And hopefully that will make them more successful on their job and in their role in, in our office. Um, but, yeah, I think d- just to, to sum this up, digitization and remote um, Working environments, virtual working environments, are good for some sectors. I don't think it's the best thing for um, for legislating. I just, I just don't, I don't think so.
0: And I, and I think that's highly relevant in your industry is understanding people. Right? There's so many factors that I think many people miss out where they rely on technology or they think that some data set is going to save them. And at the end of the day, that data set needs to be communicated to the decision makers or budget controllers via people. The email that needs to be sent to determine what the product is that you're ordering is sent, drafted, et cetera, by people. And so understanding the importance of uh, interpersonal communication and relationships in any industry, I think cannot be overstated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true.
0: You don't have any other thoughts for me on that though? That's it. That's it. You're just like, Hey, we're going to love everybody. And when they get back to the office, they're going to be better employees.
1: Well, I mean, um, I you know that that's TBD. Like, I don't know what the I, we don't really know what the um, what the uh, th- this is. It's going to change. Um, there's 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 going to be a secure a new security environment. There may be a new working environment. The leadership, the powers that meet, powers that be, may decide to keep certain aspects of practice of of what we've done now so i don't you know i don't know what else to say about reintegration because it all really depends on 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 how that takes shape and and the decisions that are made um so yeah i i i don't know i suppose once i know how um the new normal will look i will be able to advise on reintegrating you know and begin to strategize on those on, on how to reintegrate people but we just don't know at this point like what what is what's it what what will be the reality in seven six six months?
0: And when we think about post COVID realities, what are three of the challenges? You're in a privileged position in Washington D.C., so we're going to pick your your confidential security clearance uh, approved brain and say, what are some of the, the maybe two or three of the new realities that you think broadly the American workforce should look for, particularly? Uh, upcoming graduates, so we've got some graduates coming up in May 2021, uh, we've got some MBA cohorts that are are, are sort of coalescing and coming to comp- fruition December 2021. What are maybe two or three points of advice or career uh, aspects that you foresee, trends that you think need to be addressed?
1: Trends in the workforce, general workforce that um, ri- uh, people graduating should so tell me, I wanna be sure I'm answering the question specifically. Tell me, ask me again, like what are you- Are you,
0: you lawyering to? me? Are you playing lawyer? <laughs> uh, so could you rephrase, could counsel rephrase the question? Could you cite the appropriate exhibit to, uh, the, so the reference point is simply as you look for, um, as you look to 2022, really 2023 and some recovery in the economy, uh, your your party has, has the house and, and generally you've got the Senate with the tie-breaking vote You've got the White House. And so as you as you look to policy changes, developments, are there certain job skills that you say, you know, we always know that interpersonal communication appreciation of diversity are going to be valuable skills and, and aspects of the uh, competent and advancing uh, sort of role or, or workforce member. But are there any specific things that you say, post-COVID, hey, we're really going to need to look at this we're really going to need X, Y, Z position, or in your skill set, you're going to need to understand Microsoft Teams or Zoom in a way that you've never understood it before.
1: Well, I think you know um, uh, emergency preparation, you know disaster preparation for sure <laughs> will be uh, will be needed. Um, it's just it's hard to answer that question because I think in, in my you know in my from my perspective. In my ecosystem of work, you know, it's, it's just a very specific set of, of skills. And then I could sort of extend, I could think beyond that. So, um, well, let me just, I can just talk about my industry and then tangentially, like what industries are related to that. So you have um, politics, either on the legislative side or on the campaign side, you have nonprofits and advocacy groups, the corporate sector. And uh, lobbyists, sometimes lobbyists are in the corporate sector, or they're they're multi-client. Um, they have their own, their separate firms. So within the within the general umbrella of politics, government relations, and commu- oh, the media, the press, I would also they're they're part of this ecosystem too. So within the realm of government relations and strategic communications, the skills that are of value um, to employers in all of those. Different aspects are um, communication skills, uh, strong writing, uh, public speaking, coalition build, building bridges, and coalition building. How how can you use your talents, your skill sets, your your words to bring people together? Uh, that that's actually something that's needed. You know, diversity is is in that too. But someone who can sort of think outside the box has a worldview that can really forge coalitions and bring people together. Uh, is is important in both the government relations sense and the strategic communication sense. Branding, you know, um, there is an aspect of this business that is also kind of like Hollywood show business. And I think some of the most effective public policymakers have a brand. Um, You kind of, you know who they are, you can recognize them. There's something iconic about them or their look look at what happened with Bernie Sanders at the inauguration, you know, just him sitting in a chair and his mittens, it becomes this viral image because he's very comfortable in who he is, but he also has a quote brand that resonates with people. They're like, Oh, that's so Vermont. Um, and then, you know, that that's just part of the, that's just a part of the process to get somebody's attention, but branding and uh, social media branding and strategizing is also very important skill set to have when you're trying to make policy, because there's a, the way to effect change is either through the legislative process or through an advocacy process. Um, and folks in all, in, in all aspects of this ecosystem of government relations, they're always trying to figure out the best way to make change. So building those coalitions, branding, strategizing, having strategic communications is also very important. If you're interested in going into the press and media, um, you know, it takes a little um, indefatigable drive, uh, for emotional fortitude, um, being quick, uh, having, you know, being able to make connections with people, not being afraid to like, go inter- you know, say, hey, hey, you work for so-and-so, let me tell you, my name is this and that, you know, can we, can we talk, can we get a coffee? Or can we have a meetup virtually over, over Zoom so I can get to know who you are? It takes a lot of, um, you know, outgoing person, it takes an outgoing personality to, to be a part of the uh, political communications world. But it all works together. On the advocacy and nonprofit side, uh, patience, 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 you know, because in nonprofits, you're not, you're driven by a mission. You're not driven by like money necessarily. So um, in that environment, it's kind of a struggle for power and influence in the organization. So you have to deal with sort of internal dynamics in that space. So being able to like navigate that environment and again, bring people together to, around a common purpose, common goal to get your job done in LGBT rights, civil rights, women's rights, um, you know, free choice. I'm sorry. Not free. Pro choice, pro choice, or pro life. I'm sorry. Pro. It is pro choice or pro life.
0: Those are those are our those that those are our binaries here in Texas.
1: But no. What is what is the what is pro-choice the choice? Pro life. Oh, it is pro choice. I'm a bad Democrat, actually. <laughs> what is that thing? What is that that pro choice that pro? <laughs> pro-
0: <laughs> Healthcare. Who needs that?
1: Um. (laughs) those are the those are the that is i can i can speak to that this now what's going on like outside of my my wheelhouse you know people employers will look for different things but generally in the ecosystem government relations media strategic communications lobbying lawyering multi-client firms in-house lobbying for a company those are the skills that i think you need
0: i think that's awesome well I've taken an hour of your time and I know it's valuable. I you've been getting emails and calls and those folks are gonna say, this is, I'm a congressman, you need to return my calls. I'm a congressperson. Um yeah, yeah.
1: but you know, I, I thank you for I thank you for this and I'm happy to do it. You you are a great you are great you are so consistent um in, in, in keeping in touch with me and I really, really appreciate that. A lot of people actually did text me from 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 all throughout my life saying, you know. Hi, Twan, you may not remember me, but I just wanted to check in on you like, and that was really great uh, that folks, you know, thought to uh, reach out to me on that day. Cause it was, it was tough. So I appreciate you um, for, you know, never giving up on me. And uh, I will always try to do what I can do to accommodate and help you any way I can. I think the world of you, I'm, I would want to be in your class one day. Maybe I would go back to school just so I can have you as a professor. But I'm sure, you know, your, your students are fortunate to have you. You're a wonderful person. I'm just happy. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it a great deal.
0: Thank you, counselor. Well, we'll, we'll record this soon. I'll talk soon.
1: Okay. All right. Thanks, Dietrich. Okay.
0: All right.